0: You are listening to an audio sermon of First Baptist Church of Arlington, Washington. Our mission is to know Jesus and make Him known. Thank you for joining us. Here is today's message. Well, good morning again, everybody. Hope you came ready to spend some time in God's Word. So, I invite you... To take your Bible and turn with me to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. And as we turn our attention back to this incredible section of scripture, let me remind you of the flow of the chapter thus far. In the first three verses, we are warned to look out for false Christians. Paul calls them dogs, evildoers, and mutilators. He then reminds us that true believers have a singular focus on Christ. They put no confidence in the flesh. From there, he launches into a beautiful treatise of justification by faith alone, and he presents himself as exhibit A, saying that there is a world of difference between a religious person and a righteous person. The religious person is proud of their accomplishments and tries to earn their place in the family of God, while the righteous person considers every good thing that they do to be scubalon, to be garbage, waste, dung even, compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. The true Christian has one desire, one goal that overshadows everything else, and that is to know Christ better. We want to be found in him. We want to become like him and to suffer like him and to be raised with him. That is the primary goal of the Christian life. And that brings us to our text, Philippians chapter 3, starting in verse 12. Paul says, Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own. you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me, and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Last week, we started our study of these verses with the first part of a message titled, How to Mature in Christ." We saw that Paul was a sports guy. He loved sports. There are many pastors in the world today who will pepper their sermons with sports illustrations. I'm sorry that you did not receive one of those, especially for those of you who love sports. I didn't grow up in a, in a sports-saturated family, so I'm afraid that comes through in my preaching. I don't have a lot of sports-saturated messages. But Paul most certainly did, and he loved this illustration Of the competitive runner because the Christian life is far from passive it is an active endeavor and Paul views the Christian life as a race of faith where God takes a man and he puts him on the racetrack of his will for his life and that will is for us to become more and more like Christ for us to think and act like Jesus that's the goal so there is an expectation of forward motion and progress within the Christian life as we as we run the race as we put one foot in front of the other and we make our way down the track we find ourselves conformed more and more into the image of Christ himself we begin to resemble our savior more and we begin to resemble ourselves less but that growth doesn't happen by accident it doesn't just happen It requires hard work and intense focus. It requires the same hard work and the same intense focus of an athlete, of one who runs to win, one who really wants to live the Christian life. So how do we move from the locker room to the winner's circle and become a champion Christian? How do we make progress down the track and become not only a true Christian, but a spiritually mature one? In this section, we are given five things that mature Christians do. Five things that mature Christians do. The first is found in verse 12, where Coach Paul tells us to admit the facts. Admit the facts. He says, Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Even the Apostle Paul As wonderful as he was, even he had to look into the mirror and he had to admit the facts. So what we have here is a clear picture of the Christian's condition. As we saw last week, we have the Christian's confession, the Christian's conviction, and the Christian's confidence. What's true for Paul is certainly true for us, and so he admits three facts that are true for every Christian. He says, I haven't arrived yet. I haven't arrived yet. I don't know Christ as well as I should. I still have room to grow. That's the Christian's confession. But I press on to make it my own. I push forward. I pursue him. I give it everything that I've got because I want more of Christ. That's the Christian's conviction to run full speed for the cause of Christ, to know him fully, to to make him your own. And that leads us to the third reality of verse 12, the Christian's confidence. Why do we do this? Because Christ Jesus has made me his own. If you belong to Christ, it is because he has made you his own. He is the one who saved you by dying in your place and suffering the penalty for your sins. So his righteousness could then be added to your account the moment that he rescued you from, from, from the world system by pulling you out of the world and placing you onto the track of becoming more like him, in that moment, he made you his own. So why does the Christian pursue Christ? And why should you press on towards Christ for more of Christ with every ounce of your being? Simply because Christ pursued you. That's Why? It's because Christ has reached out and pursued you. He saved you. So you have to admit the facts and affirm that these three aspects of the Christian condition describe you. And they describe your walk in the Lord. The Christian's confession, the Christian's conviction, and the Christian's confidence. The Christian wants more of Christ. And they want more of Christ aggressively. They pursue more of Christ. Because We don't have enough of Christ. And Christ has given us a reason to run. If you are going to grow, you have to admit the facts concerning your confession, your conviction, and your confidence. That's number one. Number two, to grow in Christ, you must advance with confidence. Advance with confidence. Look at verses 13 and 14. He says, Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul says, There is one thing, just one thing that I have to do. Like the athlete, I'm concerned about one thing, and that is simply pressing on. Pushing forward by forgetting what lies behind. We saw that that word forget literally means to neglect or not care about something. It's the image of a runner who is focused, a runner who is in it to win it, a runner who has his goal in mind and will not be deviated, will not be distracted to the left or to the right or by anything else. He is singular in his focus and he is running forward. He doesn't look back. To anything good or bad in his past. He doesn't look over his shoulder to see how far he has come, but he looks forward because the race isn't over yet. And he still has ground to cover. Paul says, forgetting what lies behind, forgetting it, and straining forward to what lies ahead. That word straining means to stretch oneself out, to to exert oneself to the point of exhaustion. He says, my past doesn't matter. Good or bad, it doesn't matter. I can't let it hold me back from doing what needs to be done until I cross that finish line and receive the prize of Christ. I have to give it all that I've got because the race isn't over until it's over. I have to push through and press on. I have to focus on finishing the race. I have to strain forward to what lies ahead. I can't afford to slow down. I have to push through the pain. I have to lean forward and widen my stride. Those who are mature in Christ, they run the race well, and they advance with confidence. Paul says, keep your eye on the prize and make this the one thing that you do. Push forward. Because the race isn't over until it's over, and we all have ground left ahead of us, every single one of us. That's the second thing that all spiritually mature people have in common. They advance with confidence. And that brings us up to speed, no pun intended, to today. Paul has exhausted this metaphor of running a race, and he has said everything that he needs to say about it. So now he transitions to practical application. He answers the question, okay, now what do we do next? So what? How do we apply these truths biblically in a way that enables us to run the race well? What do spiritually mature Christians do to keep running and to keep pressing on? You must admit the facts and advance with confidence, yes. Number three, to grow in Christ, you must align your focus. Align your focus. Look at verse 15. He says, Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. He says, this is how people who are spiritually mature think. They don't take their eyes off of the prize. Instead, they stay focused on what really matters. So it stands to reason then that that spiritually immature people don't think this way. If this is how spiritually mature people think, then wouldn't it stand to reason that people who are spiritually immature, they think another way? In their minds... They are actually further along than they are. They don't admit the facts. They think that they have achieved some level of spiritual success. And so spiritually immature people are typically quick to compare themselves with others. They have to because if they were honest and admitted the facts about their spiritual condition, if they compared themselves with with the Christ that we have here in scripture and scripture itself and the standards that we are presented, if they compared themselves to that, they would see just how infinitely short they fall. And the fragility of their pride can't handle that. Their egos are are far too fragile. They can't stand it. So they have to compare themselves with other people in order to feel better about the progress they've made and make up for their lack of true spiritual maturity. That's how immature people think. Likewise, the spiritually immature are not the ones who are pressing on. They're not the ones who are pressing on to to make it their own. Since they think so highly of themselves, they don't have to work as hard as the rest of us. They think they know better. They learn a few things about justification and the cross and the righteousness of Christ being applied to their account, and they think, I don't have to press on. In fact, pressing on, that, that sounds a lot like legalism. Uh, that sounds like relying on my own efforts and, and not the active of obedience of Christ. After all, Jesus paid it all. Why should I break a sweat? Or they fall on the other side of the cliff and they think Jesus didn't make me his own. He didn't choose me, I chose him. Sure, he made salvation possible, but I'm the one who responded in faith. I'm the one who walked an aisle, prayed a prayer, signed a card. He knocked on the door of my heart. I'm the one who answered. Friends, spiritually mature people don't think that way. They don't think, I know enough of Scripture now to where I don't have to work for it because God has already provided everything for me. And they don't think, you know what? I'm doing this on my own or I'm gonna meet God somewhere in the middle and I'm gonna make this happen. Spiritually mature people don't think either way. Spiritually, spiritually mature people don't, don't even go there in their thinking. Instead, they say, I haven't made it. I haven't arrived. I am not perfect, but I press on. I put the work in. I want to own my faith. That's what spiritually mature people say. And not because I think that I had any part in saving myself or meeting Jesus in the middle, but because he has made me his own. He wrote my name in a book before he created the earth, And I'm running this race today because of his mercy and because of his grace, period, period. Spiritually mature people think this way. They think like Philippians 3. And in the same way, the spiritually immature person doesn't advance with confidence. They don't. They hold on to the past. They don't forget what lies behind them. They remember it. They stir it up. They either wallow in regret or honor their accomplishments. Either way, they don't strain forward. They aren't focused on what lies ahead. They slow down, and instead of forgetting the past, they forget that the race isn't over yet. I sincerely hope that there isn't anyone here today who could care less about growing in Christ. I hope that every single one of us want to, Every single one of us has that desire, that spirit-enabled desire to become more like Jesus. Hopefully, none of us are okay with spiritual immaturity. So what are some of the implications that we can glean from this verse, from Philippians 3.15, as we consider spiritual maturity? Well, for starters, we should submit to truth, submit to truth. Notice Paul draws us in, and he invites us into his circle by saying, let those of us who are mature think this way. This isn't one of those second-person imperatives. This isn't a direct command. He's not saying, oh, by the way, you think this way. Instead, he's saying, no, let those of us who think this way, those of us who are mature, let us be the ones who think on this page. Regardless of what you or I or anyone else might think, We have to come to grips with the fact, folks, that even in this postmodern world, there is a right way of thinking and there is a wrong way of thinking. There is a right and a wrong. And we have to come to terms with the fact that what God says in this book is always true. It is always best and it is never, ever wrong. We must submit our thinking to the truth of God's word. And that leads to a second observation. Not only should we submit to truth, but we should also scrutinize our views. Scrutinize our views. Paul adds, and if in anything you think otherwise, implying that we certainly are prone to think otherwise. Rather than pressing on and straining forward, we think to ourselves thoughts like, you know, I've been running for so long. At what point can I take it easy? I deserve a break. Surely it won't hurt anything if I just slow down for a while, if I put my feet up, if I enjoy a a tall glass of iced tea on a hot summer day. I deserve a break. But friends, nothing could be further from the truth. It's not over till it's over. And even though our justifications and our reasonings for, for slowing down and taking our eyes off of the prize, they may seem good to us in the moment, If they don't line up with the mind of Christ and the revelation of Scripture, then guess what? Our opinions are wrong. Our opinions are wrong. As believers, we are not entitled to any opinion that contradicts the Word of God. We aren't. We must submit to truth and scrutinize our views. And then we should seek His guidance. Seek His guidance. Paul says, God will reveal that also to you. I like what Charles Spurgeon writes. He says, I admire that sentence. I admire that sentence. If any brother has not reached a full knowledge of the truth, let us not condemn him or cast him out of our company, but say to him, God shall reveal even this unto you. You see, one way or another, God will kick the apathetic Christian into gear. Our head coach, the Lord Jesus, will make sure of it. If we slow down or give up in our pursuit of Christlikeness, or if we convince ourselves that this doesn't really matter, that it's okay for us to take a break, slow down, take it easy for a while, then God will show us the truth, that we are wrong and he is right. God will do it. And Christian, it is always better, always better, to seek the mind of God and obey his will than to learn the same lesson the hard way. Hebrews 12 tells us that God loves his children, He loves his children so much, too much, not to discipline them. We are his sons, and therefore he has every right to treat us as such. I'll tell you what, let's just go there for a quick moment. Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. Look at this passage. Where we really see the heart of God. In Hebrews chapter 12, we'll start there in the middle of verse 5. The beginning of the Old Testament quote from the Proverbs, there he says, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the ones he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Now, the author of Hebrews is going to apply that text and explain it to us as the church. He says, It is for discipline that you have to endure. But he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. You see, no one enjoys discipline, it's painful and it's far from pleasant. But we have a perfect Father who loves us and wants what's best for us. And so, because of that, He disciplines us for our good. Why? So we can share in His holiness and produce a a peaceful fruit of righteousness. In other words, become more like Christ. Become more like Jesus. Back in Philippians, Paul says, I have no doubt, I have no doubt whatsoever that if you are a true believer— If Christ has laid hold of you, then you already think this way. And if you don't, someday you will. Because if you don't, God loves you too much to leave you fruitless, to leave you sitting on the sidelines while everyone else runs the race. God loves you too much. What do mature Christians do when they trip over their shoelaces and and they fall down on the track of righteousness? They submit to the truth. They scrutinize their views and they seek his guidance. They align their focus. They get their head back in the game and they press on. They dust themselves off. They pour a whole bottle's worth of antiseptic on their wounds and they keep running. That's what they do. That's number three. Number four, to grow in Christ, you must abide in truth. Abide in truth. It's not enough to get it and submit to it, you have to hold on to it. Look at verse 16. He says, only let us hold true to what we have attained. That word hold true, it means to walk in line with. It's a military term that pictures soldiers marching in a row. It's this idea to keep in step with what we know is true, to march in formation with the word of God. And therefore, we should be skeptical of anything that could possibly pull us out of line with the Word of God. When it comes to the Christian life, there's an old saying, if it's new, it's not true. If it's new, it's not true. And that's a good one. I wish we had more of those at Hobby Lobby on pillows and and framed signs, because it's a good word, right? If it's true, if it's new, it's not true. Everything we need for life and godliness has been given to us. Right here, we preach and teach an old message. We live by an old, ancient text. And and there's nothing new here. We don't need old heresies dressed up as fresh insights. We don't need new revelations or fresh words from the Lord because God has already spoken. What we do need is to abide in truth. We need to hold the line like a good soldier or stay between the lines and run in our own lane if we're going to extend the racing metaphor. We can't afford to lose what we have. But how do we do this? How can we possibly live up to the standard of holding true to what we have already obtained? What what prompts us to remain faithful and fall in line with this active, mature, and steadfast way of life? I'm going to give you five methods fairly quickly here. Five methods or means by which you and I can widen our stride and press on while holding on to that which we know is true. We won't spend a lot of time on these, but here they are. Five means for spiritual growth. To begin with, we grow from faithful study. Study. You can't hold on to a truth that you don't have. If you want to grow, you have to be in the Word. You need to read this book. You need to listen to it in the car. You need to sit under good teachers who will put in the work and drill deep into this bedrock of truth. No one grows without faithful study. Also, we grow from faithful supplication. Supplication. You've got to pray. You've got to ask for it. You need to tell God that you want it and then believe God to give it to you. Friend, a prayerless Christian is a powerless Christian. So if your prayer life is lame, It's no wonder your performance on the track is embarrassing. A weak prayer life will result in a weak Christian life. Make no mistake. We have to pray. Additionally, we grow from faithful submission. Submission. When we surrender our wills and our desires for God's will and God's desires, we grow in Christlikeness. This is true across the board. This is true in every sphere, in every area of life. When children faithfully submit to their parents, it honors the Lord. When wives faithfully submit to their husbands, it honors the Lord. When students faithfully submit to their teachers, it honors the Lord. When employees faithfully submit to their employers, it honors the Lord. When citizens faithfully submit to their government, it honors the Lord. When we faithfully submit to our authorities, whatever they are, wherever we find them, as unto the Lord, it honors the lord and he uses that to grow us in christ likeness because no one else in human history has ever submitted more than jesus himself and in the same way we grow from faithful suffering suffering no one has suffered more than the lord jesus himself you've heard me say it time and time again there's a pattern that we see all throughout Scripture. What is it? Suffering first, then glory. Suffering first, then glory. That's the path our Savior walked. And the same holds true for us. Also, few things will grow a Christian faster than suffering. In James 1, we're told, in one of the most famous passages of the New Testament, to count it all joy, my brothers. Whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If you want to be completely like Christ and spiritually mature, lean into your suffering and let steadfastness have its full effect. And finally, one more method or or means by which we grow is through faithful service service. With obedience and humble service comes tremendous blessing. If you want to regularly grow and pick up speed as you make your way down the track, you need to regularly serve others. You need to be involved in each other's lives. You need to be involved in church. You need to be known as someone who is quick to help others. You need to be available and willing to look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. These are just a few of the means and a few of the methods by which we grow in Christlikeness and we become more and more like our Savior. With faithful study, supplication, submission, suffering, and service, we find ourselves not only acquiring truth, but abiding in truth. Unfortunately, for some, the Christian life is no more than an intellectual exercise And they wonder why their return on investment is so low. It's because you're not in it to win it. Somewhere along the line, they lost sight of the prize and they fell out of line with what they know is true. If that's you today, let me encourage you to hold true to that to which you have already attained. Get back in the Word, get back in prayer. Get back to a submissive attitude. Get back to suffering well. And get back to serving others. Get back to abiding in truth, to what you already know is true. This is what spiritually mature people do, folks. And if it isn't true for you, what does that tell you? What does that tell you? Spiritually mature people abide in truth. And finally, if you want to grow in Christ, you must adopt good examples. Adopt good examples. Look at verse 17. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Paul tells the church to join together and to become one in imitating him. That word imitating is the same word that we get our English word mime from. He's saying mimic me, do what I do, copy me. My old preaching professor in seminary, he would often tell us great preaching is just as much caught as it is taught. And it's like that for almost everything in life, isn't it? It is just as much caught as it is taught. The Christian Herald once carried an article about the senior executive of one of the largest banks in New York City. In the interview, he told of how he had risen to such a place of prominence and influence. Surprisingly enough, his beginnings were humble. He started out as a common office boy. Then one day, the president of the company pulled him aside, and he said, "'I want you to come into my office and be with me each day.' The young man replied, "'But what could I possibly do to help you, sir? "'I don't know anything about finances.'" The president told him, never mind that. You will learn what I want to teach you. A lot faster if you just stay by my side and keep your eyes and ears open. That was the most significant experience of my life, said the now famous banker. Being with that wise man made me just like him. I began to do things the way he did, and that accounts for what I am today. Listen, you can probably count on one hand the number of self-made, uninfluenced men that the world has produced, if any. Because one of the primary ways that we learn how to think and act is by watching and imitating other people. Paul recognized this, and the spirit who inspired this command through Paul, he gets it too. That's why Paul says what he does here in, in, this, in this section of Scripture, right smack dab in the middle of Philippians three. And then he says it again a little bit later on in chapter four. In chapter 4, verse 9, he writes, What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me. Practice these things. In 1 Corinthians 11, 1, he says, Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. And again, in 2 Thessalonians 3, 9, he says, His goal was to give them an example, to imitate. Notice this is the same man who in the same breath says, I'm not perfect. I'm not perfect. I haven't arrived yet, and I need more of Christ. And yet, he encourages other believers to imitate him and look to him as an example. Why is that? Because Paul knew how spiritually mature people think, and he knew how they don't think. Spiritually mature people admit the facts. They advance with confidence. They align their focus. They abide in truth and they adopt good examples. They make the main things the main things and they hold on to what they know. They press on and they give it all that they've got. They don't stop growing and they don't look back. And that's Paul. That's Paul. He knows that's him. Listen, people will let you down. That is a fact. We all know that. Hopefully, everyone in this room knows that. All the perfect people are dead. They're perfect because they're dead. Don't look for someone who has it all together. Look for someone like Paul. Look for someone who exemplifies the Christian confession, the Christian conviction, and the Christian confidence. Look for someone who has grown up and is growing in the faith. Someone who thinks this way, the way that mature Christians like Paul think. In the same way, you don't have to wait until you have achieved some level of perfection to become like a Paul either. You don't have to wait until you have arrived to become an example to others. In fact, if you get to the point where you think that you've got this, you're proving your immaturity. Good examples say, follow me as I follow Christ they don't say, follow me because I'm worth following. If that's your mindset, you will either think too highly of yourself or you will criticize others who are acting like Paul when you yourself should be imitating them. Sure, nobody's perfect, but don't let that be your excuse for failing to follow and failing to be a good example. Also, Paul knew that he couldn't be everywhere at the same time. So he adds this little section here at the end, this, this final phrase. He says, And keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Now, word example, it's a very interesting word. It literally means to imprint or to mark. Think of your kids when they're young playing with Plato, The impressions and the marks that they make into the clay. That's the idea here. It's like a mold that has been made by an object to make other objects look just like it. He's saying, mimic those who bear the imprint of my life and teaching. And don't just identify them. Keep your eyes on them. Watch them closely. Do what they do because they have been shaped by me and others like me. Now, who are the others? The examples worth watching and imitating here in this text who do we look to? Well, let me just give you a few options. First of all, you can look to your church's leaders. You can look to your church leaders. We see that theme all throughout the New Testament. And even here in the book of Philippians, in the first verse, Paul addresses all the saints along with the overseers and deacons who are placed in charge of the church at Philippi. This is the only letter in which he does so. The writer of Hebrews, he says it plainly. In Hebrews 3, or 13, 7, he says, Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life. Observe them, watch them, consider what their life is like, and imitate their faith. That's the exact same command that we see here in Philippians two seventeen, But it's directed specifically to the church's leaders. In 1 Peter 5, 3, Peter weighs in on the other side of the table and encourages church elders to be examples to the flock. In 1 Timothy 4.12, Paul gets even more specific by telling a young pastor to set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. Listen, the deacons of this church, the other elders, and myself, we are obligated to watch our lives closely. To be careful in how we live and how we conduct ourselves because we are obligated to live a life worth imitating. Does that mean we're perfect? Of course not. Of course not. Like Paul, we haven't arrived yet either. But God has given his church leaders who will press on and run the race as an example. As an example. Church leaders are imperfect models, but models nonetheless. That's one group worth watching. Another good place to look is right next to you. Maybe. I don't know who you're sitting next to today. But look around you. Paul doesn't limit the scope of biblical examples to the church's leaders, but he broadens it to anyone who is running the race well. If you discover someone in the body of Christ who is admitting the facts, advancing with confidence, aligning their focus, abiding in truth, and adopting good examples, well, first of all, if you discover someone in the body of Christ, the first thing you need to do is let leadership know. Let one of us know in leadership so that way we can approach them and, and strong arm them into becoming an elder or a deacon. But then the next thing that you need to do is watch them closely. Watch them closely. Keep your eyes on them and walk according to their example because they are fitting the same mold we are. The word of God. You can also look for biblical examples in the Bible itself. Look at Joseph. Look at Moses. Daniel. And for the ultimate example, Jesus. Jesus is the only perfect example we've got. But Hebrews 11 is still full of imperfect but faithful role models worth imitating. Another source is Christian biographies. Read about men like John Christosom, Martin Luther, John Calvin, Charles Spurgeon, and John Patton, men who knew God and stood for the truth against intense opposition, church leaders, fellow saints, scripture itself, and Christian biographies are all good places to start looking for good examples. Honestly, there's really only one place, one bad place that you could turn to, and that's the mirror. The mirror. We all need godly examples worth imitating. You won't find perfect Christians, but you will discover that there is always someone more mature than you. Identify those people. Keep your eyes on them and follow their examples. And remember, that door swings both ways. You are not only obligated to search out and find good examples and keep your eyes on them and imitate their life, But you are also obligated to put the work in and become someone worth following. You are obligated to be that person to someone else. So let me ask you what kind of example are you setting? What does it look like? Is your marriage worth modeling? Is your time in the Word worth modeling? Is your prayer life worth modeling? How about your attitude towards authority and those that God has placed over you? Do you suffer well? Like Job, do you say, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. What about service? Do you sacrifice for others and consider their needs more important than your own? Think about those five things that we looked at. Think about them and take inventory this morning. Ask yourself, where do I land on each of these? Are you a good model? Are you a good example for other Christians to follow? I hope so. I really do. But if not, let me encourage you with something. Let me encourage you with the one thing that you can do to fix it. Because there is. There's just one thing that you can do to correct that problem in your life. Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead you can press on towards the goal. You can can take this thing. You can take this book by the horns. You can study. You can go to the Lord in prayer. You can work on submission and service and suffering well for the cause of Christ. You can become that mature believer. You can be the one who thinks this way. Who is humble in mind and humble in heart, who says, I haven't arrived yet. And I'm not waiting to get to a point. I'm not trying to achieve a certain level of personal success before I start trying, before I press on, before I strain on, before I give it everything that I've got because I'm not done yet. That's the mindset that we must have, people. We must have it. That is the mindset that we have in Scripture that we are encouraged to cultivate and to grow in over and over and over again. Why? Because like we saw back in Philippians 2, this is the mind of Christ himself. This is how Jesus thought He was obedient to the point of death. He humbled himself. No man has ever gone so high and so low as the Lord Jesus Christ. And because he went from being so high to so low, God has exalted him by giving him the name that is above every other name. Friends, this is the attitude, this is the heart that we must cultivate. This is what we have been called to, to be like our Savior, to love our Savior, to grow in Christ-likeness. And this is how we run the race well. We need to be actively pursuing this Christ, this mindset. We need to be like him in every way possible. So if you are not like him, if if you're sitting here this morning and you're thinking, wow, Hans, you really beat me up this morning, I might give myself a one star out of five, or two, or three, depending on, as I I look through that list of those five things you mentioned that all start with the letter S. Look, I'm sorry, my intention is not to make you feel worse this morning, but my intention is to hold up a mirror and say, look, this is what God's Word calls each and every one of us to be. This is the standard. This is what God wants of us. To run the race well, to not slow down, to not step back, to not lick our wounds or look, look at what's behind us, but to move forward, to stretch ourselves, and to be faithful men and women of God. There's only one fix, and there's only one thing you have to really focus on this morning, and that is to press on, to be faithful to this text, to be faithful to the Word of God, And to be that mature believer. To think this way. Like Paul, I pray that we would all think this way. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord in heaven, God, again, we thank you. Thank you for your grace. We thank you for your mercy. Thank you for making us your own. We know that at one time we were not a people. But now we are because you have called us out of darkness and you have brought us into your kingdom of light. Lord, thank you for doing that. Thank you for not just making salvation possible. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for all of the work that you have done and all of the work that you are doing. Lord, I pray that you would continue to work in our hearts. I pray that we wouldn't slow down. I pray that we wouldn't take our eyes off of the prize. I pray that we would run Faster and harder than we ever have before. That we would retain our focus. That we would abide in the truth. That we would adopt good examples. Help us, Lord. Help us to live up to this standard. And Lord, form more and more of your Son in us. I pray that we would think like Jesus, that we would act like Jesus, and that we would be more like Him every single day. That we would take these responsibilities seriously and that we would grow into mature men and women, that we would think this way, that we would be on the same page as you would have us be. Lord, create that heart in us. Build us, strengthen us, and establish us, knowing that we are not perfect, knowing that we will never achieve perfection. This side of of the veil, Lord, we still press on to make it our own, to know Jesus, and to make him know. Lord, we love you. We thank you again for these wonderful promises that we have in your word. In your name, amen.